Amen. We are free in Christ. Amen. Amen. We are not free in our own doings, in our own religious activity. We're free in Christ. Open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you're having a hard time finding Genesis chapter 1, just open your Bible like two pages. There it is. You're right there. All right. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. We are continuing our series this morning, uh, Conversations with God. And uh, I think I told you guys about how uh, Deanna Blount and my son took a really weird photo and put it on my iPad here weeks ago. Did I tell you guys about that? I think I did. Um, if I didn't, they did that. And it got saved as my, like, lock screen. And I've still not changed that because I keep forgetting about it. And so just that threw me off just now. Just I looked down and I was like, whoa, okay, get back on track. So Genesis chapter 1. They got, every time they get me. Um, I shouldn't leave my phone. My phone's sitting over there, but my wife's over there. So hopefully Sandra will keep an eye on the phone so Josiah doesn't get his hands on it. Or she's in on it with him. We'll find out after service. So, um, but this morning as we continue our series, we've covered a lot of ground in our Conversations with God series. We've talked about what would God say about these different topics. And we've asked the question, what would God say about politics? What would God say about church? Um, and that was actually two weeks of our talks. And then what would God say about some of this new age, new thought teaching that's kind of come into the church? Not our church specifically, church meaning the body of Christ. That there are things that are being taught, phrases that are being used that have more of an origin and more of a, a foundation in new age, new thought teaching than it really does the Word of God. And so if you missed any of those talks, you can go on our app, which is just uh, North Goodland BC in your app store. You can download our app. All of the messages are archived there. You can just pull those up. You can get them on the website, uh, nor, uh, northgoodland.org. And uh, I, knew, I know the website. I, I think I know the website anyway. Uh, northgoodland.org, you can get those there as well. And so all different ways to access the materials. So if you've missed any of these weeks so far, I encourage you to look into that. Um, also, real quick, I actually got a couple, I mentioned this before, a couple messages to my inbox through Facebook of some ideas or some things that people said, you know what, this is what I would ask of God. This is what I would ask God if I could ask him this or that question. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, man, if I could sit down with God, if I could have coffee with God, if you would, what would I ask him? What would I want to ask him? And we explain this. We understand that we're not really, when we see him face to face, we're not really going to ask him questions. We understand that in Christ, we will fall on our face in worship of him and praise of him, and we will be ushered into his kingdom by his glory for his praise alone. We know that. But if we could have a conversation with God, what is something that we kind of scratch our head and go, God, why this? We did this series a few years ago, 2018, I believe. And so if you missed any of those, we went through eight different topics Everything from what we talked about this morning with the Pregnancy Center of Lapeer from the Senate. If you have any interest in those, check those out, kind of like a library type situation. And so, but this morning we're going to talk about what would God say about our origins? What would God say about our origins? What would God say about how we came to be? How we came into existence? And if we could sit down and have a conversation with God and say, well, how did I come to be? How did I come into this world? And, and that's really one of the two most asked questions in humanity today. Uh, it's how did I get here and why am I here, right? I think that's a pretty common question in humanity today. How did I get here and okay, now, now that I know or at least have an idea of why, how I got here, why am I here? And that's a huge thing that humanity wrestles with every day. This idea of, of how did I come into existence and what's the purpose for my existence? And so this morning we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit and talk a little bit about these things. So Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to start in verse 
27. So Genesis 1 and verse 27. Because in our day and age today, there's a lot of different ideas about how we came to be. And I really believe that God's word gives us a pretty direct answer. I think if we sat down and I said, okay, Jesus, if you were sitting here, how did I come into be? I don't think he'd have to scratch his head and go, hmm, let me think about that for a minute. I think he would quote to us the word of God. And I believe that when we read these words, I believe Jesus would read these words to us today if we were having a conversation with him. So, so Genesis 1 and verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created, created he them. Go over to chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, just one page over most likely. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. That'd be a really cool moment, wouldn't it? Like, have you ever... Sometimes I think we, we read the Bible too, like, like we've just heard it so many times. When I read that, I actually stop and try to think, you're Adam, very first man, very first human being. And God creates a woman and then brings that woman before you. And you see her for the first time. I know what Adam was thinking. Yow! Right? Like he was like, that's right. Okay? You know how I know this? And you might think, come on, pastor. You're just reading into that too much. I've been blessed to do quite a few weddings. And some I've done maybe not as well as others. We won't get into details. But anyway, um, someone here may think that. But anyway, so... That was kind of an inside joke just for them. But, um, so for the recording, ignore that. But you know what's crazy to me? Every time I've done a wedding, and usually it's set up pretty much the same way, right? Like you've got me and the groom at the front, right? And then there's that aisle, and then the bride turns that corner. Those of you that have been married, you know what I'm talking about? And the groom sees his bride, maybe not for the first time, because some cheat, you know, they go see each other or whatever beforehand. We did, Sandra and I did. We actually did most of our photos before the wedding, just so you know. Um, they were like, you can't do that. That's bad luck. I was like, look, I want to eat when we're done. So whatever we can get that done. So can we get the pictures done here, do the wedding, do a couple pictures, and then food. That's what I want. Um, and so, but every groom, I don't care how big they are, how tough they are, I don't care. Every groom I've stood next to, the minute that woman turns the corner and he looks down at his bride, and instantly you can see it in his face. Sometimes there's outward emotion. You can just see him get this like smile and this joy that comes over him. Why? Because he knows, man, God is blessing me with this woman. And I can only imagine you're Adam. This, you've never seen a woman before. Okay? And God says, here you go. Here's your bride. Okay? And so let's read on. So it says there, he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man or out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now we're not going to get into that too much, but just understand that it's a play on words there in the Hebrew. Okay, it's both literal and meant to express a symbolic gesture. Okay, they both were literally naked. Okay, but it says they were unashamed. That word naked in the Hebrew also carries the idea of vulnerability, transparency. 
Okay? This is before the fall of man, which many of you, if you have a Bible, a Prince Bible, uh, chapter 3, most of you have a heading right above chapter 3 that says something like the fall of man. So right after this beautiful moment, we see sin enters into the world. Sin enters into mankind. So we have this amazing moment, this beautiful garden, this beautiful scenery, this wonderful moment in creation. Things could not be better than they are in this very moment. And then the very next thing you read about is this sin that enters in. But when you read that phrase there, they were naked and unashamed. It's meaning they were literally naked, but also symbolically they were completely vulnerable to one another. And there was no shame because there was no sin. It was complete innocence, complete trust, complete transparency. And then you're going to read that in Genesis 3, sin enters in. And all of a sudden they realize their nakedness and they try to cover themselves. Again, in the Hebrew writing, this is both literal. They really tried to cover themselves physically. But also it's the idea of I cannot expose myself fully and in complete vulnerability to someone because now sin has twisted my thinking and now I'm afraid of being hurt and being violated. And the authors of God's word, under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these things for these reasons. So we would understand not just the beauty that was offered to mankind, but the damage and destruction that sin brings into our world. When you read the book, uh, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, I've said this before, you're going to read a very gory scene. Sacrifice after sacrifice of death upon death upon death. And you may think, man, this is really gross. But when you read that, there's one theme that constantly comes out. Where there is sin, there must be death. That's kind of the points of the sacrificial system. Where there is sin, there must be death. And that's true of us physically. Where our sin continues to rule and reign in the flesh, when we die physically, if we do not know Christ, we will die spiritually, be separated from Christ for all of eternity. Because our sin must bring death. Jesus, or God said, in that day you will surely die. But praise God that over 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we just sang about, sets us free, came and died on the cross, sacrificing himself for all of the world. Whoever would call upon the name of Christ as Savior, whoever would cry out and say, I repent of my sins and I trust in Christ, their sins are forgiven and they're now a living breathing son and daughter of God, restored and reunited to this kind of a relationship we see in Genesis chapter 1. It's an amazing picture of God's restoration activity. And so here we see, how would God begin the discussion if we said, okay, God, how did I come to be? I think Jesus would quote to us Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and say, I formed you. I formed you. We're going to get into that word in just a minute here. But this is not all of Christianity doesn't even believe this, by the way. All of our culture definitely doesn't believe this. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about real quick some of the different views about how we came to be, why we feel those views maybe don't accurately define the evidence we see, and then talk about what we believe as a church, and then make an application to why that matters today. And so there's three main views of our origin, of our coming into being. Okay, obviously you guys have studied this, you know this. Uh, the basic idea, the first idea is evolution. And the basic idea there is that everything evolved or is evolving from a lower life form. So we started as this pile of ooze. Okay, I'm being very uh, kind of facetious here, a little sarcastic, okay? We started as this ooze, and then we kind of slowly over millions and millions of years, we just kind of kept evolving, evolving, evolving into boom legs, and then evolving, evolving, evolving in speech, and then we can interact and wear pants, and we're good to go. Okay, that's, that's a really condensed, horrible explanation of evolution. But you get the idea. 
lower life form constantly evolving into a higher life form, okay? We're constantly evolving. Uh, In this theory, there's a couple key components that have to kind of come to work together. Uh, And these aren't in order, but these are just three of the things that I've kind of heard, seen, or heard, and have seen people say this is what is needed for evolution. One of the key things you heard talked about a lot in evolution is natural selection. This is the idea that a lower life form that's not as evolved will be wiped out by other species that are more advanced, okay? So like this creature doesn't have the ability to defend against this creature, so this creature just kind of naturally wipes that creature out, or they have to evolve, get stronger, get smarter, get more defenses, and then they can defend themselves and so on and so forth. So it's this constant cycle of kind of wiping out and then evolving above and wiping out. Now, natural selection to a certain extent does happen. And if you study anything with the Creation Museum or Answers in Genesis, uh, they talk about how there is a thing as natural selection. However, natural selection does not necessitate the evolutionary model for explanation. Okay, so natural selection does happen. Creatures do wipe each other out and have to learn to adapt to their surroundings. But that adaptation is not evolution to the idea of what they would say. And so I encourage you to look into that more uh, than just this morning. So another thing they would say is, you have natural selection, you need positive mutations. Positive mutations, this is where a mutation, actually multiple mutations, work together to make the species stronger, better, so on and so forth. However, uh, mutations that we know of are mostly harmful. And as time goes on, they impose an increasingly heavier genetic burden on a species. So there are mutations happening in species. They happen in human beings. But the majority of them that we know of and can account for actually are harmful to the species or to humanity. And the longer that species exists, the longer time goes on, more and more mutations actually put more and more of a, quote, heavier genetic burden on that species. And so it actually does harm to the species, not positive change. We don't see any positive, consistent mutations that create positive change in a species. Some evolutionists still believe, though, that given time, chance, and the occasional positive mutation, that it will create an upward and onward progress within a species. So if, you're, if you follow evolution, those are three things you will hear a lot. Time, chance, and mutations, positive mutations. If we give something enough time, chance, and positive mutations, it will produce an upward and onward result. This is why when you study evolution, one of the things they do, and those that attest to this, have to give millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. You have to, to account for all these radical changes. Time, chance, positive mutations will create this change in the species. But the post-neo-Darwinist, this is somebody that has kind of adapted some of Darwin's teachings but have kind of grown beyond them as well, uh, are looking for another means to explain evolution. So even post-neo-Darwinists, who actually do believe in evolution, they're realizing there's not enough mutations that are positive that are happening here to account for all this change that we've seen in the past. So we've got to find another catalyst, another means So now we say things like occasional mutations. So they're even having to change some of their vernacular. However, creationists, which are those who believe in the literal creation of God creating mankind and everything we see in creation, creationists account for mutations very easily. And in fact, creationists will explain the origin of parasites and disease using mutations, which actually fits the evidence we see in species and in humanity. And why do we see disease and sickness 
and these things happening, why these negative mutations are happening, because of Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world. Now, could you imagine the world before the fall when God says at the end of every day, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. I can't imagine living in that world, but here's the the wonderful truth. One day, we will leave this world in Christ and we will stand in his glory in his heaven and we will see something a thousand times better than the Garden of Eden. We will see the full joy of our Lord and it will be a beautiful, beautiful moment. So, evolution. We've got natural selection, positive mutations, and micro, or I'm sorry, macro changes within a species. Macro changes. Not micro. Micro changes would be more closer to what we call adaptations. Macro is where one species slowly becomes a different species. Okay? Uh, there is no evidence in the fossil record for transitional fossils. Uh, evolutionists actually have been quoted to say this. Evolutionists say that we don't see evidence in the fossil record because the change was so rapid in the past. Okay? So this thing became this thing so quickly, there's no record of it being in transition. But if you ask evolutionists why we don't see evolution today, they will tell you because it's happening too slowly. Think about that for a second. Evolution happened all this time ago. Why don't we see transitional fossils? It was so fast. Well, why don't we see evolution happening today? It's happening too slowly. And so if you're not careful, you hear these things, and the way they can teach it, it almost sounds like, wow, that really sounds believable, until you start digging deeper into the actual evidence. And if you ever have a chance, we had the, the blessed opportunity to go see, finally, to go visit the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And I'm going to tell you, if you've never had a chance to go, I know some of you have, go. It is worth the time, the money. It's not even that expensive. Okay, they got really good food for anyone that's interested in that. And it's not very expensive there either. Okay. But I love what they did at the Creation Museum for this reason. Every exhibit you go to almost, they lay out all the evidence. And then they say, this is what evolutionists do with the evidence. This is what we do with the evidence. Here's the conclusion. Which makes more sense to you? Which seems more logical to you? And you look at just the evidence. And I appreciate that so much rather than some snarky, some sarcastic, you know, attack that way. It's just lay the evidence before people and let them decide. What they believe looks like, and this seems logical to me, and seems to make more sense. Evolution, as far as a theory, is actually relatively new in relation to uh, our understanding of our origins. In the early 19th century, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck uh, proposed his theory of the transmutation of species. The transmutation of species. The first fully formed theory of evolution in 18. 58, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace published a new revolutionary theory. So you have this first guy who proposes this transmutation of species, and then in 1858, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace published a new revolutionary theory explained in detail in Darwin's On the Origin of Species, published 1859. Up to that point, do you know what the prevailing thought was as far as how human beings came into be, even in the scientific community? Even in the scientific community, there was this thought that it was more of a creationist model. Now, not everyone believed that. Not everyone agreed with that. But the prevailing thought was that was kind of the hell-to scientific model. But over time, obviously we know this, over time, and as people get, quote-unquote, more enlightened, they try to drift away from these archaic teachings, 
right? These fossilized teachings, I mean, these things, hey, that was funny. I didn't even mean that to be a pun, but um, these archaic teachings. No, no, we can't base it on the word of God. That's too simple. We need something more academic, more scientific. And so fast forward now, here we are, a little over 100 years later, you know, we're kind of moving through this culturally and we're seeing how people still will hold to an evolutionary model. But even in the evolutionary community, they don't hold to the same model that Darwin held to. You guys ever see that example, that illustration of a monkey turning into a man over time? If you've seen that in a book, raise your hand. Science book, school. Okay, you know that's still in science books, but it's completely been debunked? Like most even secular evolutionary scientists don't believe in that model anymore and haven't for a long time, but it's still in the books because that's just what we always have been taught. So even in that community, people are starting to go, man, maybe there's something else out here. And it's kind of interesting, even in the secular community, there's a thought that's been developed over the last so many years called intelligent design. Some of you may have heard of this. It's not creation per se, because sometimes they don't give the credit to God, but they will say, you know what? Some intelligence had to start life on this planet. Do you know that atheists are completely fine with giving the credit for that intelligence to alien life form that we can't find or show any evidence of, but they refuse to give it to God? Atheists will say, academically, like, accredited people that have degrees, atheists will say, we're fine with it being aliens, just don't make it God of the Bible. Because why? If I say that God created mankind then humanity is actually under the authority of that creator. And now I have to give an account to that creator, to that authority. And I have to actually say that I'm not ultimately in control of my very being or my destiny after this life. And if this part is true, then man, maybe the rest of the book is true as well. This is also why one of the key areas that people will attack scripture on is this account in Genesis. Because if you can get somebody to doubt the origin of species, that really means this is how we actually came to be in Genesis 1 and 2. If you can get somebody to doubt the accuracy of that, then you can get them to doubt the rest of the book. If we can make this just go away, make this just allegorical, make this just figurative, make this just Moses was too simple to understand the complex evolutionary processes, so God dumbed it down for him to make it easy to understand. If we can just get rid of Genesis 1 and 2, it changes the whole book. All of a sudden, why do I need a savior? Why do I need to give account for God, to God for sin? Who is God over me anyway? He's just some deity out there. I have no reason to be accountable to him. But if he's creator, then he's rightfully the judge. He's rightfully the judge. So that's one of the views uh, that we obviously hear the most about as far as in our culture. Uh, another view would be something called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution basically is that God created the first forms of life and then evolution took over. So God was the origin of, of, of the life forms, but then God used evolution for the processes and the changes that we see. This view contends that the creation account in Genesis is not literal, but allegorical, just story to help us understand deeper truth. In this view, uh, the days of creation represent an amount of time to account for geological ages, some have suggested that there is a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that contends for these ages, these time periods. Let me encourage you with this. If you understand Hebrew writing and how the Old Testament was written, the best way to understand the opening verses of Genesis are as historical accounts. You could call it historical narrative. It's historical information that's told in a story form. So Genesis 1-1 is a summary verse 
Pretty good summary, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's a summary verse. Genesis 1-2 is the conditions of the story. And then Genesis 1-3 on is the telling of the story. This is actually a common Hebrew practice, summary conditions story. So Moses is writing to the, the children of God, the Hebrews, as they're getting ready to go into the land. To, to conquer the land. They're, they're coming out of Egyptian captivity. And he's writing to them these accounts that they've heard. And he's putting in form this idea of how things unfolded, these first five books of the Bible. And we have to understand that, that when Moses wrote these things to the children of Israel, they did not take this as allegory. They received this as historical fact. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so theistic evolution is kind of a, a compromise, Right? It's this, we believe that God created, but we don't want to take these silly things we read in Genesis 1, and so we'll compromise, we'll, we'll kind of bring in the scientific community on this. And again, some of you may have heard this, some of you may believe this. This isn't about trying to offend anyone, I'm just trying to get you to understand what these groups would hold to, okay, in a, in a rough idea. And again, if you're here and you believe in evolution, um, I just want to let you know, I've heard many stories of people that were fully devoted followers of Christ, Christians, that loved the Lord, but believed evolution, not because they hated Jesus or didn't believe the Bible, because they just were never taught there was even another avenue. They were never taught. And I'll give you an example. I was sharing with somebody here a few weeks ago. We had the chance, Buddy Davis, um, who's uh, on staff at the Creation Museum, if you go there, he does all the, the, the models for the dinosaurs, all the uh, sculptures. There you go. I was like, I know there's a better word. All the sculptures for the dinosaurs, he does those. But he also has put out DVDs and things like this, and from a creationist point of view, he told his testimony when we were there. We got to hear his testimony. Do you know that he was fully saved, but yet completely believed in evolution, uh, worked in museums and things? Like, he did not attest to or give any credit to creation. And he says, because it was never preached in my church. Now, let's step back for a minute. I've learned something as a pastor. It may have very well been preached in his church, right? I mean, I've had people come to me and say, you know, you never really speak on this. Now, sometimes I, I really haven't I've maybe ever spoke on that, and it's a good encouragement to say, oh, I need to talk about that. Other times, somebody has said that to me, and I'm not looking at anyone. I'm not, it's just how it is, okay? It's not like you should feel bad or guilty about this. But I had people tell me, oh, you should preach on this. And I go, oh, we did a four-week series on that two months ago. Oh, I must have not been here. Like, so, so that happens, okay? So I'm not rocking this guy's church or whatever. I'm just saying, in his perception, he never heard it preached. He never heard creation talked about in his church. And so he's going through his life, and then he meets and hears about Ken Ham. And they have a conversation, and Ken Ham begins to explain to him some things. And he ends up changing his whole view on, on how we came to be, and now works at the Creation Museum. And so I'm just telling you, it's not like, well, I'm evolution, I'm a Christian. It's not like you, you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution, Okay. By the way, you can be a Christian and believe a lot of things the Bible may tell us not to believe. But the question is, have you been discipled? Have you been taught? Have you been encouraged in the truth of God's word? I love what Shane said. Man, sometimes we just need to sit down with people compassionately and competently and lay the word of God before them and allow God's spirit to work. And so I'm not trying to rip on anyone. Okay, I'm not trying to say if you believe in evolution, you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is as a follower of Christ, are we willing to give weight and credit to God's word and say, okay, whatever I believe, God, I want your word to either affirm that or correct that. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we sit before God's word and we read something contrary to what we believe or have believed, 
whether it's in some kind of a doctrine or some kind of thing in our life, we have to say either I'm right and Scripture's wrong, or Scripture's right and I'm wrong, and I have to decide who's going to change here. Am I going to change and affirm my thoughts to the things of God's Word, or am I going to try to change God's Word? That's the choice we have to make in a lot of areas of life, by the way. And I believe, and our church believes, that the, the true view to Scripture is creation, that we were formed as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 speak of. Creation is simple. This is the belief that all life was created by God and for God. Not just created by God, period. We were created by God and for God. And we read that later in the New Testament, right? All things were made by him and for him. You exist for the glory of God. And by the way, it's a pretty amazing evidence of a creator God when you look at the diversity of humanity. The wonder and beauty in, in tones of skin and language and culture and all the things we see in the world. It's amazing to see God's creative work in practice and happening all around us. And so, creation. What do we mean by this? Uh, we believe the six days of creation are literal 24-hour days. And so here's what I want to give. I want to give you five reasons real quick. Five reasons. Wow, is that really the right time? Okay, five reasons why we believe in a literal day. When we say literal day, when you read Genesis 1, you read about on the first day God did this, the second day God did that, third day, fourth day. There were six days of creation. And we believe those days were literal days that God intended for us to take as historical fact. So here's five basic reasons. Not an exhaustive list, but basically uh, five reasons why we believe this. Each day is defined by the terms evening and morning, giving definite beginning and end. The complete creation is consistent with the complete creation of mankind. What do I mean by that? The complete creation is consistent with the complete creation of mankind, meaning Adam and Eve are spoken of as full-grown adults. God formed them as full-grown adults, as he does with the rest of creation. He made fully-grown trees and plants and animals. He formed them completely. The coupling of the word day with an ordinal number, so first day, second day, third day, is consistently employed throughout the Hebrew Bible to mean a literal day. On the third day, this happened. That day cannot mean whatever you want it to mean. It has to use the third to represent a day, an actual day. Context within Genesis as well as the rest of the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. You can jot it down real quick. Exodus Chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 11. Actually uses the argument of a literal six days to speak of a seventh day rest. It's speaking about taking a literal seventh day rest. And to make that point, they have to say these six days of creation were literal. That's why we have a seventh day rest. It wasn't a figurative seventh day. They took it as historical fact. Genesis 22, 4 Genesis 22.4, just another example of this idea of a number and a day. Abraham went on the third day. That's a literal day, not a figurative geological age. Abraham didn't go on the 2,000-year day, right? It's a day. In Paul, or Paul even, in Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, we read here, Paul says this, that God made all of humanity from one man. That every nation came from one man. So Acts 17, 26, we see that reference. That all of humanity, all of the nations came from one man. Again, what is that giving credit to? 
that on that day he made Adam. Not a figurative Adam, a literal Adam. And that is the beginning of the human race. Context always determines meaning. Context of the author and the audience and what they wrote and how they wrote it and all that goes around it, all of that matters. Another, the last one here, the fifth point. An age, in quotations, an age of time for each day is irreconcilable with the specific genealogies of Adam and his descendants present in Genesis 5. Right in Genesis 5, you're going to read an amazing list. And I know we think these are boring. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. Everybody's just begotten somebody, right? Lots of begotten going on, okay? When you read these genealogies, there's another one in Genesis 10. These are given as record. How does Matthew open up his gospel? Matthew 1 starts with what? A genealogy. These are, these are giving evidence of the lineage, of the line, of the connection from one person to the next, showing this beautiful line we see in the New Testament all the way from Adam to who? To Jesus. So in Genesis 5, Genesis 10, if we make these days in Genesis 1 figurative thousands of years, then how do we reconcile that with Genesis 5 and Genesis 10, which gives us specific genealogies of generations? If we take that as historical fact, then we can't very well disregard the first two chapters. So it is clear that Scripture teaches we were literally created by God, and I believe that creation model gives the best and most accurate explanation for the world as we see it today. I believe that we see all this evidence around us, and man, it is a beautiful world. I know it's corrupted by sin. I know there's a lot of things going on in our world that we don't like. By the way, that's not new. It's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. But man, you've experienced this. You've gone out on a beautiful day, felt the sun on your skin, the warmth in the air, or the cool in the morning on a fall day, which is going to be real soon, right? You guys know, what's the worst part about fall? Winter's after it, right? Yeah. I told Sandra, I said, I would love fall even more if winter wasn't next, right? When we see the beauty of creation, the Bible's pretty clear. It is displaying the handiwork of our God. He didn't have to make it beautiful, right? He could have made it functional, but he made it beautiful. Why? Because he's showing us the beauty that is within his creation, which is within him as creator. And so real quick, we see these models, we see these examples of how people try to explain how we came to be. I believe creation is the best model, not only because I believe God's word teaches that, I also believe it's the best model based on the evidence we see. And we're not going to go into detail of all of that. I know we could have a long discussion about those things. But I also want to point out that I believe it shows us that we were formed with purpose and value. I believe it gives humanity purpose and value. This is the application of understanding created by God. You and I have intrinsic value. I believe if God could sit here today and have a conversation with you, I think he would want you to know that. I'll just be honest with you. There's been times in my life I haven't felt very valuable. I haven't felt like I contributed a whole lot. I felt like I was maybe a failure in a lot of ways. Growing up in a home that I grew up in, I felt like I wasn't very loved most of my childhood. I know I was, but I didn't always feel that way. I felt God didn't really care about me because all the stuff I lived through and had to go through. But then I realized as I got older, that's more the result of choices of people and choices I made than the result of God's doing. But you have to understand this today. I think this is crucial 
you are not the result of some random genetic mutations. I don't care what your parents said. I don't care if you were planned, unplanned. God formed you in your mother's womb. You have purpose and value because you were created by God. Bar nothing you do for him or nothing you do for anyone else or how successful you are, you are valuable because you are God's creation. And he formed you. If we remove God as creator, the only way we could grant someone value or worth would be based solely in them. Right? If, if you remove God as creator over all of humanity and you just look at humanity as just this evolutionary process, the result of evolutionary process, how do I give value and worth to another person? I have to give it based on what they do and who they are and how they live and how morally good they are or how evil they are or all those things. It becomes so subjective to the person. Just It's changing all the time. We would elevate those that are more appealing, more talented, and more valuable in what they contribute to society. We would remove or degrade those that were not as, quote, evolved. We would elevate those who are really good at something, who are talented, financially wealthy, valuable, attractive, all these things. We'd elevate them, and anyone who did not appear as valuable, we just remove them from society. Cultures have done this, by the way. It's cultures that had no knowledge of who God was or wanted no knowledge of who God was. They based it solely on themselves and they began elevating themselves. Why do you think there's a caste system in India like there is? Where you're just born into this caste and this is who you are and you'll never get out of this. Maybe in five, six, ten generations of reincarnation, you might get to the next level. And could you imagine living in a system where you're born into this family and nothing you do changes your view or how you're viewed in that society? You're worthless merely because you were born into that family. By the way, we see this in our own culture today. People are treated this way or seen this way. Because we remove God from the picture and we think it's all about them as an individual, meaning they have to prove their value and worth rather than granting them value and worth because they were created by God. In reality, if we hold to the evolutionary model, we should have no problem with the elderly people in our society who cannot contribute being removed. Natural selection. If you're over a certain age, so I don't know who's in here. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. You know, if you're like, I don't know, maybe say 80 and above. What if, the, what if that's, it, that's the line, okay? You're out. You're done. You can't contribute anymore. How about people with diseases that make them have to have be weighted on hand and foot because they just can't take care of themselves? How about those that just have situations in their life where they're mentally unable to live a normal life and they need someone to walk with them? And we would just remove them because, you know what? You're not contributing anymore. See, if we remove God from the picture, the value we give to each other becomes so limited. And we start to think so lowly of each other. I would also suggest that the idea of one people group being higher or better than another has its roots in the evolutionary model, as well as sinful pride. Well, we're just more evolved than you. Study our history. This is what led to the slavery in our country and in parts of the world. We're just better than them. We're more evolved than them. Do you know evolution was a part of this thinking? It's amazing to me. It's easy to go, well, if we remove God as creator, and it's just what we deem as evolved and who's evolved, then we can minimize this whole people group and elevate this one and go, now you just are property. We just own you. Man, nowhere does God approve of that. Because all of humanity has intrinsic value. I truly believe 
that the answer to the racial issues in our country, as well as the world, we said this a few weeks ago, prejudice is not an American problem. Racism is not an American problem. It's a human problem. People groups have been elevating and lowering each other since the beginning. Well, we're better than you. We're not as bad as you. We're better than you. We do this to each other all the time as human beings. Now, I told you guys, when I was in Romania, the Romanians who were true Romanians hated the gypsies who were also Romanians, but they were gypsies and they were down here and we're up here. Look the same, same nation of origin, but yet degrade them, beat them up, tear them down because they're not like us. I truly believe that the answer to the racial issues in our country as well as our world can be resolved in the knowledge that we are all created by God. I referenced uh, Acts 17.26. We read there, one race, not many. We are all the human race. There are people, different people groups, language groups, ethnic groups. There's a word in the Bible called ethnos. It's referring to those different people groups. There's beauty in that in your culture, by the way. There's beauty in culture. We should embrace that. I've had a standard hour in Mexico, and we saw some of that culture, and I was just blown away by the, the, the music and the family and all those things. We can embrace those things, but not to the point of dividing one another, but to realize this is how God has gifted this culture with these areas. But by the way, we're all part of the same race. We're all the human race. Now, in October, probably the middle of the month, um, I came across a resource when I was with Answers in, or with the Creation Museum, and it's called One Race, One Blood. And it's a study for like small groups. Uh, as of right now, my plan, if God wills, is after we finish Romans, probably about the middle of October, um, I want to do that study on Sunday night with our church and walk through how we can think biblically about each other. And so I'm praying about that. I pray that it's going to be a good study. But understand this. I believe that the results and how to solve some of these issues is coming back to understanding we were all created by God. We all have value and we all have worth. You see, only with God as creator do we have a distinct purpose. We are not living for merely ourselves and this life. We have a higher, better calling to live. A higher and better calling to live. This is why the restoration and reconciliation through the gift of salvation in Christ is so powerful. Listen now. It is not only eternal life in heaven, but it is a purposeful life on earth. I think we got to get this. I know I got to get this. It is not only eternal life in heaven that we think of as a gift of salvation, but it is a purposeful life on earth. We have purpose in this world because we know Christ. When people believe they are the result of some random collection of cells just thrown together by chance, and when we die, there is nothing, they are left with only this life to try to fulfill their desires. This world in a relationship with God before sin fulfilled all of man's desires and needs. After sin and after the fall of man, relationship with God was broken and creation was marred in sin. It is the guarantee of an eternal life and the restoring of our relationship with God that brings the things in this life greater meaning and purpose. So I want to close by sharing this. And you guys can go ahead and if you have a Bible, you can put that aside. But I want you to really think about this because I want us to kind of end with this idea. I want us to realize that as we talk about creation, evolution, in our day and age today, there's a lot of, been a push for apologetics, which is so good. We need to understand the truth of God's word and how it relates to culture and issues around us. But I think sometimes, and there's been some great debates. Uh, many of you remember Ken Ham debated Bill Nye uh, twice, actually, in the recent so many years. Uh, and 
when we think about this, this is good. And you may debate with people at work. You may have conversations at work. You may talk about creation evolution at work or in your area of influence or whatever, and that's good. And it's so good to have those conversations. I encourage it, okay? But we have to remember as we talk about all this, we can't lose Jesus in the debate. We can't get so apt and so desiring to prove to somebody this is right and this is wrong that we forget about the reason we want them to know that they were created by God so they can know who God is in their own life and know Christ as their Savior. And so as you're, as you're having these conversations, and I'm just putting this out here as kind of a little bit of a, maybe just a little asterisk on it, just a little caveat. As you're having these conversations, please remember the point of all of this is to point all the glory to God and to bring knowledge to, of Jesus Christ to someone's life. Because that's where they're going to really see change in their lives. When their heart and their mind is changed by the Spirit of God through the gospel. And so again, these are great things to share, great points to make. I encourage you to have these conversations, but let's not lose Jesus in the debate. All right? And so here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to close in a word of prayer. The band's going to come in just a moment and lead us in a song of invitation. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the invitation. Super simple. If you're here this morning and you believe you are not valuable, if you're here this morning and you believe that your life just doesn't really mean a whole lot, you're not really seeing a lot of impact in your life, you don't really know that if you weren't here, it wouldn't matter to anyone. If you're at a point where you're really feeling that you just don't have value right now, or maybe you thought your value was in something else, your position, your, your, who you are, maybe you're a mom or a dad and you think your worth comes from that, let me just remind you today, your worth comes from your creator God who formed you gives you purpose and value and loves you more than you can imagine. So here's what I want to do. If you want to come and pray and just take a knee up here at the altar in just a moment, no one's going to bother you. But if you want to pray with someone, there'll be some people in the front here. Maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, remind me of my value and my worth. And here's how we'll know we're valuable to God. All we have to do is look at the cross. He loves you so much and you're so valuable to him that he died on the cross to save you from your sins. And if you would repent from your sins, just acknowledge your sin, turn and trust in Christ, you can be saved. Not by anything you do, but by what Christ has already done, being crucified, buried, and rose again. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I pray that as only you can, that you would affirm these truths in our life. Lord, that we would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have formed us and created us with purpose and value. And Lord, I know that there might be some in this room right now Maybe there's some that are listening to this online or they're just feeling not very valuable. They've tried to get their worth from their possessions. They tried to get their worth from their family, from their influence, from how well they do in this or that field. But Lord, I, I truly believe that the, when we understand that we were formed of, of you, created by you, given value and intrinsic value, not just based on what we do, based on who you are, that we can know that we are loved. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins to show us that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to be buried in a borrowed tomb and rise again. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, they would come to know you today, that they would know eternal life, not eternal separation and damnation in a place called hell. May we choose to not pay for our own sins when we receive the gift that you give as payment for our sins. For that one or maybe more that feel like they're not very valuable this morning, I pray that you would show them that you see them as valuable. I pray they would know your love today. I pray they would come and bend a knee and just know that you are there for them. Father, in all these things, we give you all the praise. Work now, we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand to your feet as the praise band leads us in a song of invitation? Would you come and pray if God has laid it on your heart? If you feel like, man, I'm just not very valuable, maybe you'd come and pray and say, God, remind me of my worth in